How do you make urban density comfortable and friendly to the neighborhood? We'll talk about that in a couple of minutes. That's one of the things coming up this morning. John, what are we talking about elsewhere on Vancouver Real Estate Today? Ian, this week marked the first week of school for students returning to college and universities in BC. And it's no secret the housing crisis has hit students especially hard. Over the summer, we saw dozens of hopeful post-secondary students line up just to view rental suites that looked more like walk-in closets. A new report from the Alliance of BC Students this week suggested no new student housing has been built outside UBC for the last decade. Chair Alex McGowan says there are barriers in place that the province needs to remove. All that really needs to be done is for universities to be allowed to apply to take on debt to build student housing. And then that debt is self-financed through the residence fees that students pay when they stay in the housing. Essentially what we're asking for is $2 billion worth of housing to be built at almost no cost to taxpayers. So I think it's very realistic. UBC's Director of Student Housing and Hospitality, Andrew Parr, says over 5,000 students are currently on the wait list for campus housing. An estimated 150,000 international students are here in BC, 80% of which will be residing in Metro Vancouver, and competition is fierce among renters. Toby Chu is the CEO of the CIBT Education Group, who provide housing to international students. I've seen closets, a closet of about like 50 square feet with a bed and, and clothing hanging all around. That closet costs 500 bucks to rent. Chu says without more incentive for developers, the problem's only going to get worse before it gets better. Unfortunately, they, they are running a very successful production line of luxury condos. For them to switch off into uh, affordable housing is not going to be an overnight event. Add to that, the federal government's doubling the number of international students to 450,000 by 2022. I've seen condos in uh, Yale Town, Vancouver, with like curtains hanging up on the ceiling and have four persons living in it, about 500 square feet. Chu says with a lack of rental units on campus, international students are now looking off campus and getting scammed when they do. Landlords, some of the bad ones may advertise something online showing a Shaughnessy house. By the time the student arrives from overseas, they are living in Chinatown or, or some you know, lower east end Vancouver uh, living in a basement. Ian, some people have been asking online why we even let so many international students into BC. They're just adding to this growing housing crisis problem. Well, one answer, according to Chu, they bring in $5 billion to our local economy. Staying with rentals, Ian, it's been a hot topic this week and it is here on Vancouver Real Estate Today. We reached out to Keyshawn Roy, he's the CEO of the BC Not-for-Profit Housing Association. We were talking about rent affordability and just the fact that with less and less affordable units available now, especially when you consider the fact so many more students are coming back to school and employers looking to hire might be impacted by this because how do you draw somebody into the area if they can't afford to live here? It's saddening, and the truth is, you know, I can see it as an employer. It's it's difficult to uh, recruit and re- maintain staff when when they can't afford to rent a home. We're hearing it from CEOs in the high tech sector, which employs 135 thousand renters in Metro Vancouver and recruits people from all over the world, but they can't do it because uh, people can't afford to live here. And rental housing is something that. In the 1980s, we really stopped building in a substantial way. So we're about 30 years behind the curve when it comes to rental housing development. And it's particularly bad in the suburbs, the communities that have grown up over the past few years, where people are now spending 40, 50, 60 percent of their income on rent. Or, uh, as we've heard about a bunch this past week, people are trying to rent a suite and they end up in a bidding war on a rental. 
Ian, we talked about renters bidding on units, and now we're finding out students are doing the same just to get a place to rent. Well, in my sector, the nonprofit housing, and so it used to be that if somebody couldn't afford to buy a home, the rental market has something there for them. And if the rents are out of range or there isn't something suitable uh, or they fall on tough times, then social housing will pick up uh, and prevent people from being homeless. But now the waiting lists for social housing are so long, and we haven't really built any of that in 25 years, that all of these things, from the high cost of home ownership to a low rental vacancy rate to not building any social housing, has meant that we have mass homelessness uh, in a way that is absolutely heartbreaking. So all these things are really connected. Again, speaking with BC Not-for-Profit Housing Association CEO Keyshawn Roy here on Vancouver Real Estate Today. Ian, again, discussing rent affordability, a hot topic this week. We discussed the idea and this idea that moving to the suburbs is the only way you can afford rent now. But is it more affordable when you have to pay for things like gas and bus passes and riding transit into work? Well, I think one of the worst things we've done in the Lower Mainland is we've created our transportation policy and our housing policy separately. And a lot of the time, uh, we've built SkyTrain lines through Burnaby and New West and Surrey, and now uh, through Coquitlam and Port Moody. And along those lines, all of the affordable rentals get torn down and condos go up for home ownership. So you lose housing affordability on a lot of our transit lines. And so for the people who are challenged economically uh, to, or are looking for a rental, then they have to add this cost of transportation add an hour back and forth, lose quality of life, um, that's, a real, that's a real challenge. And so what they start doing is saying, well, maybe I'd be better off being overcrowded than I would be uh, transporting myself for a couple hours a day. And as we enter the fall, we get ready for the winter, and then come springtime, we'll find out more about Vancouver City Council's idea on requiring all new strata housing developments to have 35% of their units include two bedrooms or more for families to rent out, something we talked to Keyshawn Roy about as well. I think it's uh, critical, and uh, it doesn't go far enough. There's a 10% requirement in there for some three-bedroom suites. Um, That's not a lot. That's not a huge family. That's you know, we, we faced this real challenge this year when we tried to bring in uh, Syrian refugee families. And you end up with families with five, six, seven, eight uh, children. Uh, we, we don't build that kind of housing at all. And what's happened in British Columbia, certainly the lower mainland, is that uh, the private market has such a long development time to build property that they try and build in as much profit as possible to reduce risk. And what that means is that they tend to go to the areas of the market uh, that are the most profitable for them. And that's been small suites, studios, one bedrooms, and not a ton of the other stock. And uh, I think you can, through regulation, get some of those three-bedroom units and two-bedroom units online. Uh, but I think we're going to need a whole lot more. And it's probably not going to be a private market solution in the end that solves all of this. I think uh, the, probably the future of Housing in the Lower Mainland is we'll see uh, housing where the profit motive is taken out, co-op housing, non-profit housing start to be the solution to a lot of uh, these these uh, demographics that have been missed by the current setup of housing that we have. We talk a lot about changing our idea and our image of what a family home is. I'm talking about a three-bedroom home with a yard. Well, that's really not the story anymore. It's a condo with a 
well, 200-square-foot balcony, if that. Of course, the home is still obtainable. It just depends on how much you make, where you want to live, and how far you want to commute. For the majority of millennials getting into the market, this idea of a family home may have to change if you want to buy in Vancouver proper. Yeah, I think we're going to have to change that. You know, uh, I uh, live in a, in a condo with, uh, with my two kids, and life is fantastic. And the truth is that the... Our backyard ends up being the, the, the beaches and parks and uh, the amenities uh, of the city in a very different way. And, you know, there's plenty of other benefits, too. A lot of buildings have uh, a bunch of different amenities within them, plus it's easier to keep clean. Uh, you can end up on transit lines a lot easier. So, you know, I think uh, both in terms of looking at Vancouver and saying that renting is, a, is probably a very good option with very low risk, uh, that's uh, important for, for business and family and other reasons. Uh, I think that also uh, condo living is something that's going to become far more common for, uh, for, for families. I would add, too, that in Vancouver, only 3% of the housing stock are rows and townhouses. So I think there's probably, uh, that's probably an area where we could grow the amount of housing and densify some communities as well. And lastly, is it really still a seller's market with a 26% decline in home sales this August compared to last August? Realtor Steve Soretsky disputes the report from the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver that we told you about on last week's show, which had President Dan Morrison saying sellers still have the upper hand. For a condo, it's kind of still a seller's market, so it's the detached market. Look how many sales there were and like, look how many active listings there are. Uh, totally, like, you can just see that right away in the price reduction. Soretsky looked at four markets the east side and the west side of Vancouver, Richmond and Burnaby. He says across Metro Vancouver, detached homes were down 57% compared to last year. He adds data released by the board can be biased. The real estate board, what they release every single month is process sales, which basically means that even some of the deals that were done, some of them go as far back as like May. The important date to look at is the date when both parties agree to a purchase contract. Swetsky thinks it's now a buyer's market with detached homes seeing price reductions of over 100000 and many sitting on the market for over 100 days. And those are some of the stories that made real estate news this week. Ian? Thank you, John. Coming up next, urban density without disrupting the neighborhood. On Vancouver Real Estate Today from News Talk 980 CKNW. Anyway, housing in Vancouver and elsewhere have become a popular choice for extended families to stay close by and as rental income. Laneway housing in Vancouver dates back decades in various forms, coach house, guest house, etc. Infill projects have shown potential to be a positive tool in conservation as well, adding density without demolition or disruption. Joining us by phone is Jake Fry. He's the founder and principal of Small Works since 2005. Uh, 2005, that is, Mr. Fry and Small Works have been strong advocates for the introduction of laneway housing in this area. Nice to talk to you again, Jake. You too, Ian. How are you doing today? Excellent, thanks. Um, you know, I wanted to I wanted to talk to you about uh, density, and, uh, or, or the topic I wanted to talk about was density. How can we increase density in an urban area? And I thought, you know, I should talk to Jake Fry because this is essentially what you've been doing for over 10 years now is that you've been adding density into urban areas without having to disrupt the neighborhood, essentially. Oh, completely, Ian. And I I think it's really, it's a very interesting discussion 
as well as another facet, because often we talk about density, focusing on more square footage per acre or per property. And I think one of the really interesting things that uh, you alluded to, especially around character retention, we can talk about that a bit more if you like, but is the fact that often we can actually really what we need to focus on is more households per block mm-hmm. and not necessarily more square footage per block. You know, I think we've all seen lots of news reports and everyone has anecdotes about big homes going in and older traditional neighborhoods that become used for, you know, a family the same size or actually even families that are substantially smaller than they were 20 years ago. And one of the things we've really been pushing in in the last little while, or at least trying to stimulate a a robust discussion around, is around, you know, what is really an appropriate size home? What's an appropriate size household? And and how can we start to facilitate more households per neighborhood? And I think inherently that creates an affordability insofar as we may not be able to affect land price effectively. Mm -hmm. And we may not be able to affect construction prices in a meaningful way without big subsidies, but we are able to perhaps create more homes. And those homes can be more of a reasonable size, traditional size that we've seen in neighborhoods for decades, um, and such become more attainable for people. And I think that's a really interesting way to approach uh, this challenge. I agree with you. I think the two things that you've said here that are the two things that I'd like to touch upon, and one is size and one is the so-called affordability crisis. So size, it seems to me that it started in the 1960s, particularly that is on the west side of Vancouver, although it's seen in East Vancouver as well, where we we came up with this idea that, that bigger is better uh, we we don't necessarily have to have a large family, but we have to have a large lot and a large home. And that in 2016 has become unrealistic, at least in urban areas. And where laneway housing can come in is that you can have more of them with less space without disrupting the infrastructure as it stands right now. So that leads me to the question, and I don't know if you have any numbers, but would this actually provide enough inventory to reduce this level of uh, want this because there's a huge demand and would it have any impact on affordability well for sure so i think this, yeah let's just take those in bite-sized bits so first of all interesting uh, number is sort of sitting around maybe about 50,000 potential building sites for laneway homes so, I mean, right there, we could, you know, without changing anything, if we didn't do any demolition and just added infill laneway homes, and let's say that number was 30%, we cut that number down 30% for whatever reason, site conditions or oversized homes or whatever it would be that they weren't really eligible for laneway homes, we're still adding probably housing for about 60,000 people. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah, without taking down any laneway homes. And, and as we know from our numbers, generally speaking, we're down at least two people per property. Um, for what the current infrastructure was built for for the city. You know, the household sizes have gone down around two people per household. So considering most laneway houses rarely have more than two habitants, we're, you know, again, we're not necessarily overtaxing the uh, infrastructure that currently exists in the city. So right there is a really interesting number. And as we know, and as we just talked about, most of our work tends to be for extended families because we tend to, we build a slightly higher end unit. We're really focused on, on really being a, a strategy for families to deal with their property and how, what their challenges are and whether it's aging in place or young families looking for a starter home. So right there, you know, land costs are down. So, you know, for $300,000 to $350,000 for total project costs, that's 
construction of the house and city fees and taxes and everything, we're providing really high-end laneway homes. And you start to think about that, that starts to really enter into uh, a reasonable price that families expect right now for a starter home in, in, in not only Vancouver market, but really even Canada-wide in many cases. So there's a sense of attainability, right? And we're not talking about subsidized affordable housing, but attainable homes for people who have lower to middle class or, you know, price range, you know, in the context of a family income. So, so most, now, of the, most of the laneways that you're building are uh, the owner plans to have extended family living in that laneway. That tends to be some. That tends to be the strategy. I mean, I'm, it is a rental initiative, um, but I'm speaking very candidly. We tend to primarily do high rent homes, and they tend to be infilled. We don't really build with the principal residence. So people come to us when they're looking for family solutions. Right. Sometimes people want a, a, a really nice rental unit, might command a slightly higher price, or they're looking for a tool to be able to afford like a shift up in the housing market. So they might look to us to provide a really nice home that people would rent. Um, but generally, if we were to look at our overall customer base, most of it tends to be that extended family. And certainly, we see this lots of need for people who are getting older to downsize or they move into the laneway home and up their income by renting a principal residence. Or we have adult children who want to get out of a condominium setting or out of a rental setting and actually start to be able to enter into the housing market, start to build up those things that we have with ownership, you know, such as equity and so forth. Do you know typically what uh, Laneway House would rent for in that scenario? Well, you know, it's really, uh, it's across the board. And to be candid, I mean, when we do monitor these a lot, um, we have some in some very high-end neighborhoods that are very, very lovely that, you know, are going for, you know, uh, maybe a couple thousand dollars a month or more. Uh, we, But... Looking at the overall market, we know that, you know, sort of a, a lower spec unit, um, something a bit more basic and maybe not a, a really desirable neighborhood or not a sought after neighborhood. Um, but there's even those units are probably renting for $1,500 a month. Well within the range. Got, got to leave it there, Jake. Uh, always, always great to talk to you. We'll get you on a, again because uh, this is a topic that I think we need to talk more about. I think it is yeah. one tool that can be used to help with uh, the affordability and lack of inventory. So uh, well, once again... I'd love again, to talk to you about the, the heritage component when you have an opportunity, because I think there's a real, really lovely, lovely, lovely solution to preserving a lot of these character homes. We'll do that soon. We'll do it okay. soon. Thanks, okay. Jake. Jake Fry is the founder and principal of Small Works. Uh, we're going to come back, and, and after the break, we'll talk to somebody who built and lives in a laneway house. I think you'll find this story fascinating. When we come back on Vancouver Real Estate Today on News Talk 980 CKNW. Patricia Fraser is a Vancouver-based blogger, author of The Lady Who Lives Down the Lane. Patricia and her partner live in a much-celebrated, custom-designed and built laneway house in East Vancouver. Good morning. Welcome to Vancouver Real Estate Today. Good morning, Ian. Nice to have you with us. Uh, it's been a while since we last spoke on CKNW about your laneway house. We followed the, the build and uh, we actually even tucked you in when you moved. So uh, we feel that uh, we've uh, watched this closely enough to, to have a revisit on life in a laneway house. How long has it been now since you built and moved into your laneway house? Well, it's been nearly three years. Has it been that long? Leave. It has. We moved in in uh, the end of November 2013. Wow. So the story goes, uh, if we can just have a, a brief uh, uh, look back, you, you lived on the west side of Vancouver, you sold your place, uh, 
and you decided that uh, with your kids' blessing that you would build a laneway house in their backyard in East Vancouver. That's right. And so you did. And was it a difficult process to, to go about building a laneway house? Well, no, of course not. I mean, uh, for us, it was really easy because we had our builder, uh, Novell, design build, do all the heavy lifting, all the work. Uh, we just watched it go up, even for the people who lived in the big house. It was not that big of a deal. They lost their backyard temporarily mm-hmm. during the build for about 30 weeks. But now they're really happy. We're really happy. It's all part of it. Uh, so your kids and your grandkids live in the, the the main house on the property. You're in the laneway house, and you've got a yard in between, basically. That's it. Nice. So it is nice. It's yeah. a good fit. Now, just before we get sort of into the lifestyle part of it, what about the neighborhood? Was was there any concern in the neighborhood that you know you were building this laneway? What a blithe in the neighborhood! Where are we going to park? Any of that? Did that come yeah. up at all? No, we got none of it. And in fact, uh, in this neighborhood, there's a lot of uh, teardowns and rebuilds, and they all have laneway houses. Really? So. Yeah. On your block alone, uh, is there more than one? Uh, at, on our block, there's a granny suite at the other end, which I think was originally a garage and has <laughs> been there for about 100 years. But on the next block, there's at least two. I think there's three. Wow. So tell us about life in a laneway house. Um, how, how much square footage do you have for living? We have a really small house because of the the lot and the amount that we were allowed to build. So we've got a total of 724 square feet. And how many people live in your unit? Two people and two cats. Okay, so where do the people go? (laughs) Kidding. (laughs) Because anybody who has cats know that they really rule the roost. (laughs) They do indeed. Let's be honest. Uh, so what what is life like in a laneway house? Do you find that it's is there are are there any inconveniences that that you could share? You know, if we were to do this all over again, there's only one thing I would change, and that is the color of the grout in our bathroom tile. (laughs) Because we just love it. We just love it. It's perfect for us. And until we had the opportunity, we would never have discovered it. Right. Uh, changing the grout in the bathroom is uh, fairly easy to do. So that's <laughs> uh, and I get I get the, the the humor that you're implying. I think that's a, a good a good way to look at it. Um, getting used to the size was that an issue for you at all? I mean, I would imagine that if you're coming from a bigger place, moving into a smaller place, you'd have to get rid of a lot of stuff. We did. We got rid of a lot of stuff. We are still getting rid of stuff, which is an ongoing process, unfortunately for us. We are sentimental that way, but. The, the laneway houses, I mean, you were just talking with uh, Jake Fry. They are designed for this kind of living. There's lots of flexibility. There's lots of storage. There's lots of light. And so it's not like you've taken, a, you know, a normal detached home and shrunk it down. They're specifically designed for this kind of life. Right. And it's lock-and-go living, I guess. If you want to take off, go to town. You lock your door, you don't have much to worry about, you've got your security system or whatever in place, and, and boom, you're gone. It's not a lot of tidy up, not a lot of clean. Uh, it's just uh, pretty straightforward. We, yeah, we are about 10 minutes away at any time from why don't you come and see what the laneway house looks like because there's spaces for everything. 
Yeah. So you so storage has not not really been a particular issue. Uh, cooking dinners. Uh, what what happens when you want to have guests over? For example, uh, you want to have a dinner party, or somebody wants to stay over the night. Well, if somebody wants to stay over for the night, we put them up at the big house. <laughs> right. Okay. And we don't have we don't have a lot of dinner parties. Uh, we do eat out in restaurants more often now. Mm-hmm. For that sort of thing, you know, we'll meet somebody at a cafe or something rather than have them over. There's enough room for four people to sit and eat comfortably, and that's enough for us. But um, like I said, it's just a small adjustment at that point. Now, so, as somebody who studied this, and I know that you did, you spent a lot of time researching and studying the, the idea of laneway houses. Do you see that this as, as a potential to relieve, as we talked with the Jake Fry, to relieve some of the, the problem of inventory and a lack of inventory and affordability? Oh, absolutely. I think this is a great opportunity for the city to really densify these neighborhoods. Now, you know, like I said, there were a lot of new builds going in. Almost all of them have at least two suites in the main house plus a laneway house. And and yet we don't feel like there's a lot of crowding in the neighborhood. It's just another home with an outbuilding, just like there are houses with garages. Mm-hmm. So you don't get a very crowded feeling in the neighborhood. There's still lots of lar- yards, large yards, and there's nice tree-lined streets. And there's no really high building going on, nobody overshadowing their neighbor's yard. So it's, I think it's an excellent opportunity to get more, uh, you know, rental stock or uh, purchasing a home for uh, more than one generation of family. Well, the extended family was the model that uh, Jake Fry uh, referred to. And he said that in his business, uh, what they do, and there are lots of companies around, that they are primarily building upper-scale, high-end laneway homes in the $350,000 range. It doesn't have to cost that. You can do it probably for a lot less than that, I would think. Yeah, I think what he ran into as what we ran into was because we were going to be living in it ourselves, we went with the custom cabinets and the Mm -hmm. special little um, tiny appliances and things like that, little things that we wanted that because we were new, we were going to live here, like his clients do. But if you're going to rent it out, you can use uh, big box stuff. You know, you, you can just go to the big box stores and get uh, cabinets you put together yourself. You don't have to spend that kind of money. Right. So uh, without, you know, asking too many personal questions, what is the status of the property? So you live in the in the laneway house, your kids live in the main house. What's the status of the property itself? The property is theirs. Okay. Uh, we have uh, an agreement with them that we just we drew up and signed because we didn't want to have twenty years from now any arguments about things. Right. You know, we wanted it to be set out in advance. But the property is theirs. What we have purchased with our building of this house is the right to live here. Right, okay. So when all is said and done, will they take over the, the title of the, the the laneway? They already have title to the laneway. Okay, yes. so so you have We're an agreement. there on their largesse. Right. <laughs> okay, fair enough. So uh, because that's something I think people would wonder about, who takes ownership, who has the responsibility. If it's a, simply a rental situation, that's pretty obvious. But you actually built this home yourself. You You had a hand in designing it with your builder. So that's why I'm asking the question, because people might wonder, 
because this is an ideal situation for an extended family, not just as a rental property, but if you want to keep everybody together, instead of sending the kids or the parents out to who knows where, out of the area, away from your grandkids or your family, uh, this is a much better, much tidier way to do it. Oh, exactly. And it's really nice, you know, nice for us, but also it's nice for the future. In the future, who knows, you know, uh, eventually we won't need the house anymore. They could have move their kids here. They could move in themselves and have the kids take over the main house. There's still a basement suite, you know. There's lots of room for different generations to live. And I think it can keep a, a property in the same family for several generations. Yeah. Appreciate your time. been fun talking to you again. and uh, I'm glad that things are three years. It's, it's hard to believe, but I'm glad that things are working out in your Laneway house. And your blog is ladywholivesdownthelane.com. Yeah, that's the story of how we built our laneway. And there's lots of great pictures on there as well. Well, it was great talking to you, Ian. Thanks, Patricia Fraser, Vancouver-based blogger, ladywholivesdownthelane.com, talking about her experience living and building a laneway house. We've got more for you coming up next. We're going to get the the mold-sniffing dog out. (laughs) That's right. We're going to the dogs next on Vancouver Real Estate Today, News Talk 980 CKNW. Nice to have you with us this morning on Vancouver Real Estate Today. Prior to Vancouver Real Estate Today on CKNW, Get Connected airs. And every week, Andy Barrar and uh, Mike Agarbo are in studio talking about the latest in technology. Today we heard about the iPhone 7. And uh, it's a great show that I listen to every single week. And in passing, in the corridors... I come across these two guys every weekend, and we have a little chit-chat, what's going on. I ask them about something to do technically. Today I was asking some questions about the iPhone 7, and Andy says to me, Ian, I've got a problem at my place. What can I do about it? And I got to thinking about it, so I brought Andy Barrar in here. He's uh, stayed around to, to talk about the issue at your house. So what is, what is happening at your house that you came to me and asked me if I could help find a solution to? So I have a, an older house. It was built in the 40s. Uh, it's a rancher-style house, about three bedrooms. In one of the rooms, it has this kind of a, a smell. It almost smells like, uh, a, like you had a wet towel there, and you can just kind of smell the moisture. But I've completely emptied it. I've cleaned the carpets. I've cleaned the walls, yet that smell still lingers. And so I approached you trying to figure out what is going on in this room because – if I don't get any kind of help, I'm going to end up gutting the entire thing, <laughs> trying to find where this source of problem is. Okay, so let's ask a couple of questions. Where is the room? Uh, it's in. It's a just like a secondary guest room. Is it? But what level? It's a. It's a rancher house, but there's like one step, so it's a little bit above. Uh, so, but what we so call a split level rancher. Yes. Okay, but where, where's the room? I'm trying to. Do, what elevation is it on the main level? It's on the main level. Okay. And is it uh, on an outside wall? Uh, it does have an outside wall. What I suspect is the house, like I mentioned, was really old. It had single-pane windows, and I had switched them. And what I noticed is when I took the old window out is that there was condensation going from the window into the windowsill. And over years, that, that condensation was dripping, and there was damage inside the wall. I had repaired that when I switched the window, but... That, that problem still lingers. So I don't know if it's coming from that window, but my, my gut tells me it's coming from the, the ground. It's coming okay. from the floor. Interesting. 
The reason I, I asked you for that explanation is because uh, it should be noted that you're very handy. Yes. And, and your uh, home improvement is something, it's, it's a hobby for you. People call you Andy Handy or Handy Andy. That's right. uh, we know you as a, a great digital guru and a guy who's connected, get connected, get it. But uh, you have a lot of experience with home repair, home renovations. I've seen your work. It's stellar, but you are truly stumped. And people must be thinking, this guy must be really in trouble if he's coming to Ian for help. And I have no answers for you. So I called on Steve Seaborn, the little contractor, to see if he had any ideas. And he's with us on the phone right now. Steve, how's it going? Oh, very good. Thanks for calling in. So you've heard Andy's situation. Uh, he lives in a split-level rancher. He's got uh, a problem in one of his rooms that has produced this, this odor that for lack of a better word, is musty and smells like something you would typically associate with mold. So the little contractor gets the call, and what does he do next? Well, we have to come over and, and um, stick our nose in the into the business, as it were. So what I was looking at is uh, things that you have not already taken out and touched. You've done the carpets, you've cleaned the carpets. Uh, if you looked in the wall, did you do anything with the insulation inside that wall? Um, what is the heat source? Uh, is there is there forced air heat? Because underneath the window, there's often that's the spot where the forced air duct comes through, and it could just simply be some convenient time. Uh, uh, there's maybe a rodent down inside there. There could be some moisture's got down inside there and just settled in there, and there's some dust and dirt and lint, and that's collecting up a little bit of a musty smell as well. So I want to look at those spots first and then sort of expand from there. Do you have to do any deconstruction in order to uh, ascertain a, a diagnosis? Well, I mean, ultimately, I would have to deflect to, uh, to Andy and say, okay, what part did you take apart? Did you take apart the wall and trust that, that if he's taken that out, it's put back together in, in competency? Uh, ultimately, if we're seeing mold or uh, more than a smell, if we're seeing something visual inside or outside, I have to look at the outside of the wall as well. We may have to do some some skillful deconstruction. Now, being mindful, if we're playing on the inside of the house, the outside of the house, we now have to concern ourselves with uh, contaminants, asbestos, for example. So right. we want to make sure that um, we're just not blindly cutting into things. We do have to take some initial safety precautions until we can prove, uh, be proven otherwise. So far, there's no visual indication of where the problem is. Now, I want to take a break here. And when we come back, we'll bring in Sean Moss, who is a certified mold inspector, and see what he has to offer and what he can bring to this scenario. We'll do that next on Vancouver Real Estate Today from News Talk 980 CKNW. We're talking about mold in a house. This is a split-level rancher, and it is owned by Andy Barrar, who is co-host of Get Connected on CKNW. Now, he's a handy guy. He's been doing home renovations for a long time. I've seen his work. It's it's top rate. But he's he's come to me with a with an issue. He's in studio with me right now, and he's come to me with this issue. Is there anything I can help him with in terms of finding out what this musty smell is in his home? Now, we just heard from Steve Seaborn, the little contractor, as to what he might offer in this situation. And he's back with us on the line, as is Sean Moss. Sean Moss, home inspector. He's a, a home inspector and mold inspector. Uh, welcome, Sean. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You bet. Now, if I got that right, uh, you're a, a home and mold inspector. Is that is that your title? Yes, that's correct. I'm I'm a accredited home inspector and a certified mold inspector. So, so we understand. Uh, typically, if I'm buying a new home, I would call you and say, "Can you give me the inspection report before I sign the papers?" 
Yeah, that's a typical scenario, depending on the market conditions, of course. Yeah, well, we won't talk about what's going on right now. We'll, we'll save that for another time. You now, go. you're accredited as a mold inspector. What does that mean, and, and what is the, how do you get that accreditation? Well, uh, certified mold inspector, what we got to do is we have to take uh, a number of different courses in order to understand indoor air quality issues in buildings, whether they're commercial or whether they're residential. We have to have an understanding of airflow, how it moves throughout the home. We have to have an understanding of how moisture might get into a home, whether that's from the exterior or whether it's from the, from the ground or the crawl space, etc., or on from the roof. And we have to understand how mold will actually grow and the certain conditions that are required. And then what we have to do is understand whether or not there's actually a moisture issue in the house right. at the time of the inspection. Now, not all molds are created equal. I understand that some molds are more harmful than others. Yes. So you, you want to be... Uh, some molds, I, I guess, are just downright toxic and nasty, while others are just a nuisance. Yes and no. It depends. And the reason I say that is because the typical mold that we talk about that's really scary... It's called stachybotrys, and that's usually due to uh, water sitting in a certain area for a number of months or perhaps weeks, and it, it creates this really sticky type of mold that can be very, very problematic, and that's what's making people sick. Mm-hmm. However, everybody has a different sensitivity to mold, so it really depends on the individual person, and, and all molds can be toxic. It just, just depends on, on their sensitivities. Okay, we've got to move along here because of okay. time. You, you employ a very special tool in tracking mold. What is that? I have a certified mold inspection dog, and she, she basically has been trained to sniff out mold wow. behind walls or uh, in areas that, that we, we wouldn't be able to smell. That's pretty cool. So what I want to propose here is that we put all of this to the test. I want to send the, the little contractor, Steve Seaborn, Sean Moss, uh, home and mold inspector. Your dog's name is? Her name's Marnie. Marnie. We're going to send you, Marnie, Steve, over to Andy's house. You're good with that, Andy? I'm, I'm great with that. You got cold beer in your fridge? Oh, I do. Oh, I'm sure you do. <laughs> want to send all you guys over to the place, and uh, we'll want to follow this to... Through the process of going over to Andy's place, uh, detecting if, in fact, there is mold, where it is, and what's causing it, and what the remedy would be. Does that sound fair to everybody? Sounds good. Great. Okay. So we're on. We'll uh, report back next Saturday on Vancouver Real Estate Today. Yay? Yeah, absolutely. Great. Great. Okay. Thank you you all. Uh, We'll talk again next week uh, as we discover or not discover mold in Andy's place. Thank you. Uh, for that, this is going to be exciting. We'll watch this unfold uh, before our eyes. I think anybody, as we were talking during the break, that has lived in Metro Vancouver for any length of time has had to deal with mold at some level. Mike Given is our technical producer. Vancouver Real Estate Today. My name is Ian Power. Stay with us. CKNW Weekend is next on News Talk 980 CKNW.